Thanks, Laura. Good morning, everybody. Did you come here to worship God this morning? That's the right answer. I have a question for you to think about throughout the message. Here's the question. If God decided today was the day, today was the day that time ended, that he ushered in fully the kingdom of God, today was the last day before heaven, what would you worry wouldn't be as good in heaven? Another way to say it, today was the last day before heaven, what would you fear you would miss? I have a verse for you, a couple verses from Psalm 73, verses 23 through 26. Everybody's laughing, I have no idea why. What's going on? Oh, <laughs> okay. I would definitely miss food. There's going to be food in heaven, everybody. Let's just say that. Okay. Better food. All right. Okay. A couple verses. Psalm 73, 23 through 26 says this. The psalmist says, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Can we make those words our words? Nothing on earth I desire besides you. Whom in heaven do I have but you? A little bit of background before we jump into the text today in Matthew. If you remember, Jesus has entered the city. The clock is ticking to the time where he's going to be crucified. There's days before his crucifixion. And the religious leaders have been at work trying to discredit Jesus, trying to get the people to reject him because they perceive that his authority is threatening their authority and their power, and they want to get rid of him. So first they try to attack his authority, and that didn't work. Then they try to go after him with a political question, and that didn't work. And now we see in this text today, the religious leaders, namely the Sadducees, go after Jesus with a theological question. And spoiler alert, that doesn't work either. The Pharisees tag team with the Herodians last week. The disciples of the Pharisees got together with the Herodians and they went after Jesus with the political question, even though the Pharisees and the Herodians didn't get along. But the enemy of the enemy, enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so they tag team. And it says here on the very same day, the Pharisees see that didn't work and say that they go like a tag team wrestling match. They go over to the Sadducees and they say, okay, you, you try. And even though they don't get along with the Sadducees, they're teaming up to try to discredit Jesus. Why don't the Pharisees get along with the Sadducees? A couple facts about the Sadducees. One fact is that they, only, they had theological differences. They only believed in the first five books of the Bible as the authoritative word of God, the book of the book of Moses, it's called, or the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The Sadducees will say that alone is the authoritative word of God, and the Pharisees didn't agree on that. The Pharisees wouldn't like also that the Sadducees were pretty buddy-buddy with Rome, so they wouldn't have liked that either. They wouldn't have gotten along very well. And on top of that, as we see in verse 23, and as you can check in Acts 23, verse 8, the Sadducees didn't believe in, the, in spiritual and the spirit life. They didn't believe in angels, and they didn't believe in the resurrection. 
which is why they were sad, you see. Okay. Some of you dads were going to come up to me afterwards and say that. I already know it. I love it. That's why they were sad. They didn't believe in resurrection, so they had different beliefs. But they had a common enemy. They wanted to get rid of this Jesus from Nazareth. So the Sadducees approached Jesus with this theological question. And here's the main idea from the passage today. It's a misconception about marriage and mortality. Keeping it real simple and short. Sadducees had a misconception about marriage and mortality. And then Jesus the King is going to correct both of those misconceptions. So for our first point in our roadmap, where we're going today, we're going to talk about the misconception of marriage. And we find that in verses 23 through 30. And then secondly, the misconception about mortality in verses 31 through 33. So first, the misconception about marriage. I want us again to get it fresh in our minds. Look at verses 24 through 28. The Sadducees approach Jesus and they say in verse 24, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring after his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven... Whose wife will she be? For they all had her. They were all married to her. So, their misconception about marriage. First, they, they approach Jesus and they say, teacher. They're, they're feigning respect like the Pharisees did, flattering teacher, even though they don't believe what he's teaching and they want to discredit him and get rid of him. They say, teacher, would you teach us something? And I thought about Psalm 55 that says, his speech was as smooth as butter, but war was in his heart. They were trying to get rid of him. So they ask him this question about marriage, and they have an underlying misconception, which we're about to get to. What was their misconception about heaven? Well, it was simply this. They didn't believe that marriage in heaven could be the same as marriage on earth, and therefore, there's no marriage. I'm going to say it again. They didn't believe that marriage could be the same in heaven as it is on earth, and therefore there's no marriage. And the rationale for that reasoning is because of something they're taking from Deuteronomy 25, this principle of remarriage, something that's called the Leverite practice of marriage. It has nothing to do with the Levites, the clan, just so you know. I learned that this week. Um, but it's this practice of, of remarriage. If a brother, if somebody was married to their wife, and they're an Israelite, and they have no kids, and, and they die in order to preserve the line, in order to preserve that name and, the, and the, the descendants, the brother would be responsible to marry his deceased brother's wife, have kids, name one of their kids after the dead brother, keep the line going. Follow? So, first of all, if I'm, a, if I'm an Israelite at the time, I'm rooting hard for my brother to get a good wife. Because if he dies, I know I gotta marry her. And so you'd be really rooting, really making sure you're on top of that, making sure they marry someone you want them to marry. But if they say no, this is what they're getting this, this argument from Deuteronomy 25, practice of Leverite marriage. If the brother says no, I'm not, I will not marry your, the wife and have kids to preserve the line, the wife could approach that brother in the middle of the public square in front of the elders, in front of the whole town, 
rip off one of his sandals, spit in his face, and say, for now on, your house is the house of him whose sandal was pulled off. Just so you know. Shame, dishonor for not preserving the line. And so that's where they get this argument from. And they say to Jesus, look, if this situation happens where somebody not only has, the wife not only has one husband, but seven of them, they're trying to be hyperbolic. They could have just used, they're trying to exaggerate, they could have just used one uh, two husbands, right? But they use seven to try to make the resurrection look ridiculous, to, to, to make the idea of life after death seem absurd. They use the idea of seven. What if, what if she had seven husbands? Whose wife will she be when they could have just said two? <laughs> Same point, but they wanted the crowd to think Jesus was silly, to think the idea of bodies being raised from the dead was absurd. And so they go at him with this argument. Their misconception was marriage in heaven would have to be like marriage on earth, but that's impossible because of remarriage. Make sense? That's the misconception. So how about the correction from the king we see in verses 29 through 30? But Jesus answered, you are wrong. I love when it's black and white. (laughs) You are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So, the Sadducees come to Jesus with this question that I'm assuming they thought he's going to be speechless, he's not going to have a good answer because they've probably used that same argument, that same question to all kinds of different people and Pharisees that believed in resurrection, and they didn't have a good answer to it apparently, so they thought Jesus won't either, and they were wrong. (laughs) Jesus says to them, you are wrong. That word could be translated deceived. He says, you don't know your Bible and you don't know your God. Marriage is not the same in heaven as it is on earth. In heaven, people are not married. Given in marriage, they will be like the angels. What does that mean? (laughs) Well, I hope you know I don't have all the answers but I'm going to try to dig a little bit with you about what that means. A lot of the commentators brought up two points about this verse, about this idea of no marriage in heaven or alteration of marriage in heaven. And almost all of them said something like, one of the primary reasons for marriage on earth is procreation, babies, as a baby enters into the room. Babies. One of the, one of the primary reasons that people are married, God's design, is to procreate. And maybe because there's no death in heaven, maybe that's one of the reasons that heaven has a different way of having, of of marriage. Maybe that's why it's different. And I thought, hmm, that's interesting. Maybe. But then most of the commentators also mention the second point, which I believe is universally true. And here it is. Marriage, the whole family dynamic in general, is a shadow of what's to come. Did you get that? Marriage, whole family dynamic, is a shadow of the reality. And I think we start to step on holy ground a bit as we think about this. (laughs) A shadow is a shape of something, an outline of something, but it's not the substance. I thought about it and maybe somehow the difference between 2D and 3D. 3D and 4D. It's pointing to something. It's not the thing itself. 
It's a reflection of it. Marriage and family, the way that God has designed it, is supposed to be a reflection, a shadow of God and his relationship with his people. In marriage, husbands and wives are supposed to mutually respect, love, submit to one another. And then as you go deeper into Ephesians 5, after Ephesians 4, it talks about more of the specifics, about how the husband is supposed to lay down his life for his wife. To love his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. A kind of sacrificial leadership is what husbands are called to model that reflects God's leadership and God's love and God's sacrifice, the sacrifice of Jesus for his church. And wives are called to sacrificially submit to their husbands. As Jesus submitted to the Father, as the church submits to Christ, they're called to sacrificially submit to their husbands. And you know, that's not easy for either party because it's not easy to be like Jesus, is it? But it's a shadow, it points to him. And in the parent and child relationship, family dynamic, parents are called to love and support and provide for and nourish and cherish and be present with their children in all the good ways that present God as father to his children. And children are called to honor their parents, to listen to them. You listening, kids? <laughs> Respect them. In all the positive ways of marriage and, and, and family dynamic, it points to the relationship of God himself and God's relationship with his people. It's a shadow. So, I wanna mention, if right now your family relationships, your romantic relationships are going really well, don't forget, it's a shadow. If your family relationships and romantic relationships are going abysmal, don't forget, it's a shadow of what's to come. One day, God is gonna lift the shadow. In the new heavens and the new earth, the intimacy within marriage, within family, within the closest of relationships, in heaven it will be far, far greater. A higher order. Will it be better? <laughs> yes. If that's one of those ideas you thought when you think of if heaven were to come today, what would I fear of missing out on or having to lose? First thing I thought of in my mind went to marriage. I had a mentor in Lynchburg. His name is Doug and his wife, his name is Diane and they have an incredible marriage and I respect them a lot. Still have a really good relationship with them. One time I was in church in Lynchburg and they taught on this text in Matthew 22, and I thought, hmm, marriage won't be the same in heaven as on earth. And at the time, that freaked me out a bit, still freaks me out a bit. Change can be scary. And so I went to Doug and Diane, and I said, hey, does this bother you at all? You guys have a great marriage. Does, does that teaching make you afraid? Or how do you feel about that? And without skipping a beat, Diane, Doug's wife, said, Tori, <laughs> In heaven, we're going to be so enamored with Jesus. We're not worried at all. Doug was nodding. I thought, wow. <laughs> Is it going to be better? 
Yeah, that's an understatement. The gift can't be better than the giver. It can't be. And so when I hear other things Jesus says, like if you love spouse or mother or father or brother or sister, if you love anyone more than me, you're not worthy of me. You don't get it yet. That can scare me. But man, it's also exciting. <laughs> because he's worth it. He's worthy. He is more than we can imagine or dream. He is the giver of every perfect gift, including our closest relationships. Will it be better? Yes. Jesus goes after this first misconception the Sadducees had about marriage. But then he tackles the next one, which the Sadducees didn't bring up in this specific question, but it's the underlying false assumption they have about God, about his world, about themselves, that alters the way that they think and alters the rest of their beliefs and brings the, the reason for this very question about marriage in heaven. It was the misconception about mortality. Verses 31 to 32. Now, mortality literally means the being subject to death. So, are we mortal? Yes. Are we subject to death? Yes. But here was their misconception. They thought death was the end. They thought there's nothing after death. And so Jesus directs his attention to that misbelief. Verse 23 says, the Sadducees say there's no resurrection. And when you believe something, you say it, you teach it, you reveal it in your life, and other people are affected by it, as well as yourself being affected by it. It says specifically, the Sadducees who say there's no resurrection, not just what you believe, what you believe comes out in your life. Do you know that? Comes out. And we influence far more people than we realize with our beliefs. So my question is, with the belief that there's no resurrection, how might that affect your life and the lives of those around you and the many people that you influence in your life? The belief of no resurrection, no life after death, how might that affect you and those around you? Well, greatly. <laughs> Have you heard the phrase YOLO? All the younger people are like, yeah. YOLO stands for you only live once, but I renamed that phrase. You ready? Yo fooled yourself. <laughs> Sometimes people say it and they do something really silly, like YOLO, and then they try to go skateboarding or something, I don't know, or take up a new hobby. I'm like, that's fine. But sometimes I've heard people say YOLO and then seriously make a bad decision. With the belief that you only live once. And it won't matter after all this. You're fooling yourself. It's a deception, it's a lie. If you believe that this is the only life, and I'm, I'm not going to go too much into detail with this. I'm going to try not to. But if you believe that there's no resurrection, no life after death, how does that affect your view of the world, yourself, and God? How does it affect your view of the world? If there's no life after death, eventually we know sun burns out. It's something like 500 million years, maybe more than that. And then time will continue to go on after all of organic life is gone. No more life. Time goes on. Eons of time, we are less than a blip on a radar. What impact can you make in this world, in this life, on this globe? Zero. If that's the case, no life after death, life, life, organic life ends, time keeps going on, less than a blip on a radar, life itself is meaningless. Man. And there's no getting around that. 
But not only would life be meaningless, your life specifically, internal, wouldn't matter. Your decisions about morality, how you live for good or for evil, if nobody remembers, if there's no judge, if there's no accountability, it doesn't matter if you live your whole life trying to do good causes and helping people and choosing to obey commands that you think are helpful for the perseverance of whatever, it doesn't matter. Life wouldn't matter, your life wouldn't matter, and your view of God would be radically incorrect. <laughs> the God that can't raise the dead. The God who's powerless. Maybe he, did some, maybe he even created the world, but death wins in the end. It's a deception. You're fooling yourself. It's the wrong view of God, yourself, and his world. So can we get to God's correction of that? What does the king say in verses 31 to 32? And as for the resurrection of the dead, even though he didn't mention it, he's going to talk about it. You have, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now, remember back in the beginning, I said Sadducees believed only the first five books of the Bible are authoritative. Books of Moses, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Maybe they thought, you know, there's, those, are the, those are the rational books. Those are the ones that make sense. Those are the ones that they follow and believe are from God. They would say that Daniel, Isaiah, like in Daniel chapter 12, Isaiah chapter 26, they just got carried away when they said things like, your dead will live. And when they said things like, those who are asleep, who are dead, will rise one day. Some to everlasting life, some to everlasting death, contempt. They got carried away when they said that. That's what the Sadducees would think and believe. They didn't believe in resurrection. And so what does Jesus do? He quotes from their turf, which is really his turf. Exodus chapter 3 from the Torah. When God spoke to Moses from the burning bush, centuries after all the patriarchs had long been dead, and he says to Moses, I am. Not I was, not I used to be, I am the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. What is he saying? They're not dead. <laughs> They're not gone forever. He's the God of the living. Back in Matthew 17, remember the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus reveals his divinity to Peter and James and John, and two individuals shown up that shouldn't have been there. If this life is all there is, Elijah and Moses spoke with Jesus. What have they been doing? <laughs> They're alive. He is the God of the living, not of the dead. And the God who spoke life into existence out of nothing will one day raise every single dead body out of the dust. Cremated or not, by the way. <laughs> he can do that. Every single person. We will rise because he has risen. And life won't be exactly as it is now. Not marriage, not family, not exactly the same, better. Our bodies in the resurrected life, in eternity, in the new heavens and new earth, will not be as they are now. Praise God, hallelujah, I'm about to dance. <laughs> okay? Yeah, I might, one day. Start dancing up here. Resurrected bodies from the king. 
And I want to give you just a couple verses, a couple glimpses into what this new life with resurrected bodies that he's giving to his people will be like. 1 Corinthians 15, my, one of my favorite places to go, that talks about resurrection life and says something that, man, I think about a lot. He says, in the resurrection, in the new life, as the stars differ in glory, you know this from 1 Corinthians 15? As the stars differ in brightness and in glory, so will the resurrected bodies of the saints. They will differ in glory. I think with every word, with every decision, with our entire life, every moment, God is stitching together one piece at a time those resurrected bodies. 1 Corinthians 15, says, it is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. There is. Philippians 3.21, he, God, will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. 1 John 3, verse 2, beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him. Because we will see him like he is. David said in Psalm 17, verse 15, as for me, I will behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I will be satisfied in your likeness. Man, if only somebody has been there in heaven and could come back and tell us or write it down what that's going to be like. If only, right? Oh, wait a minute. Jesus. Oh, wait a minute. Even this little hint from Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. You know what he says about heaven? He was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. The response to Jesus' teaching, the people were astonished, it says in verse 33. We are going to be astonished. All right. If God chose, today was the day to end time. It's going to happen one day. Whether you die or whether it's the last day before the end of the age and the new heavens, new earth, it's going to happen. If tomorrow, if today was the day, what would be the thing that you'd fear that you wouldn't be able to take with you? What would you be worried about wouldn't, that wouldn't be as good? There was a little girl and she loved Mickey Mouse, obsessed with Mickey Mouse. She had a little stuffed animal of Mickey Mouse, and she would bring it everywhere she went, everywhere, everywhere. And one day her parents said, listen, this is going to be hard to hear. You've got to trust us. We're going somewhere, but you've got to leave Mickey. He can't go on the plane. You've got to leave the stuffed animal. And the daughter said, oh, how can it? I don't, I don't really want to go now. It can't be as good if Mickey can't go. No chance. How can it be as good if I can't bring Mickey? And the parents are trying to persuade her with... Disney World tickets in their pockets saying, please, get on the plane. 
we're going to leave the stuffed animals behind. The gift is never better than the giver. The gift points to him. And one day, our powerful God is going to lift the shadow and he's going to bring us home to himself. Psalm 73 says, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me into glory. Whom have we in heaven but you? And there is no one, nothing on earth that we desire besides you. Our flesh and our heart may fail, but God is the strength of our hearts and our portion forever. God's people said, let's pray. Father, Lord, we have a lot of wrong ideas too. We have all kinds of misconceptions about you, about ourselves, about the world that you've made, about the life to come. And God, I think all of us have some concerns, some worries about change. To some degree, it's hard to trust you. It's hard to put those things that we cherish so much into your hands, to let go of them. Lord, all of us, all of us have had hearts that have failed, flesh that have failed. We haven't loved you. We haven't looked forward to you. We haven't been able to say, you alone we look forward to in heaven. That there's nothing on earth beside you, the giver of those things that we can enjoy, that we desire. We can't do it. Lord, one person did. Jesus lived his entire life in submission to the Father's will. He looked to you alone. He trusted in you alone. And while our hearts and flesh have failed, his didn't. He lived the perfect life and he was nailed to that cross and he died for our sins and mistakes and our, and our errors, Lord, refusing to let us go. Lord, in love, you would do anything to help us see the truth, embrace the truth, to run towards you. We thank you for it, Lord, and we pray you continue to make us more like him. Amen.